0: It's only a little flame, but my faith keeps on growing stronger, and it won't be long till it starts ablaze. Set my faith on fire, that's my one desire my life a pure and holy flame so the world can see there's a fire in me burning by the power of your name start a blaze and set my faith faith on fire If you take one candle and light another, and then that other does the same, before you know it, the world will show it my one desire make my love life- It to the world Igniting every man And woman, boy and girl Set my faith on fire That's my one desire Make my life a pure and holy flame So the world can see There's a fire in me
1: scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew 7, 1-5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, or cast your, am I, yeah, that's all I need to do.
2: Good morning, everyone. like to thank each of you for participating already this morning. Your voices sounded good in the hymns. and the, Thank you for your gifts and your offerings. And I want to thank Dagny for filling in for Joy, who was scheduled at first for the children's story. Thank you for the special music, even though you were scared. You know, I have to say that uh, when I was younger, I, I was scared. I still am a little bit, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And doing things up front in church, in front of friends, makes it a little easier when later in life sometimes you have to do things up front in front of people that aren't friends. And I know that the Lord prepared me personally, anyway, by doing things up front and Now, for probably the last 20 years, I have to give lectures and stuff to students on medical stuff, and that was really frightening to me at first, but doing things up front in church has made that easier for me. The sermon I'm going to share with you this morning is not a new one for me. It's one that I gave for the first time 29 years ago at the Bethel Church. 1990, and I don't know if there's anybody here today that was there that day that has heard it except my wife, maybe. Um, Stacy would have been there, but I doubt she remembers it. She would have been pretty young. You know. uh, Dwight and Ellie would have been, but they're not here today, and Shirley Stepanek might have been, but she's not here today. So, so basically, it's a new sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, let's pause for prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do invite you to be here by your mighty spirit this morning. In Revelation 3, in your message to the Laodicean Church, you told us how we are poor and naked and blind, and this morning we invite you to give us the riches of the love of God to saturate us with the character of Christ that we may be covered and filled with his goodness and to give us the eye salve that is divine that we may see and see people as you see people. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before we get into... Any new material, I would like to reread the scripture reading this morning from Matthew 7, 1 to 5. And I'm going to be reading it out of a paraphrase called The Remedy. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Do not be a fault finder, condemning, and judgmental towards others, or you will discover that you are only exposing your own defects of character. For by the way you treat others reveals the attributes of your own character and the reality of your own condition is what determines your destiny. Why do you try to find the smallest defect in someone else's character but ignore the malignant pathology in your own? How can you possibly think that you can help remove the defects in their character when all the while your character is corrupt with selfishness. You charlatans. Healthy interventions require healthy minds. First, address the defects in your own character, and then you will have the clarity and the ability to help others remove theirs. Why has God instructed us not to judge others? Well, there are many reasons. You might be able to name a handful of them or a dozen yourself. But I'm going to touch on three or four to begin with before the rest of the message, and then add another one or two at the end. Firstly, I think God has instructed us not to judge others because we often do not understand the circumstances that they are in and what is happening. And because of that, we can easily misjudge what is happening. And unfortunately, as sinful human beings, what we tend to do with that is often to gossip. And when we gossip about things that we don't even know are true, we can hurt somebody's reputation. Another reason is that it's similar but a little different. We don't know. Their hearts, we don't know their motives behind what they are doing or what they said. It speaks kind of about this in Hebrews 4.12 where it says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And That's something that we can't do, is it? We can't know the intentions of somebody else's heart. In fact, it goes even deeper than that. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's talking about ourselves, about our own hearts. If we can't even trust our own hearts and motives, how can we judge somebody else's? How can we even be sure that our own hearts' intentions are pure? Let's leave the judging to God, the one who made and knows our hearts. As he tells us in the next verse, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. At this point, I would like to tell you a story, an illustration of sorts, that I first heard from a speaker at Illinois camp meeting 38 years ago, 1981. But it made a lasting impression on me. And I'd like to share it with you this morning. Picture this. The scene is heaven. And you are there. You made it. And you are so delighted to be there. You've spent the last week or month or year, I don't know how long, in praise to your Savior. But now the coronation is over. And your angel wants to take you and show you the great things that God has been creating for you. First, he wants to take you out to show you your country home. And I don't know what you picture in your mind for what you would love for a country estate, whether it's a colonial style or whether it's a log home, but whatever it is, God knows, and there it is. You have this gorgeous, let's say, log home. And all around it, there's these pristine gardens that are beyond our imagination. There are vineyards and orchards. Everything is so beautiful. And then your angel says, come, there's more. Let me take you to the New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem and show you your city home. And as you approach the city, you see this exquisite, beautiful building like nothing you've ever seen before. New York thinks it has high-rises. You've seen nothing like the high-rises of the New Jerusalem, whose walls are how many miles high? You know, I, I forget. Yeah. Miles and miles and miles high. Yeah. And you live on some, what, 6,000-story or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But the amazing thing is you don't need an elevator. You just rise up to the level of where you're going to be living and your angel takes you down the hall and you notice strange names written above the door. So, what are these names? What do they mean? And then you come to a door that seems vaguely familiar and then you recognize that the name above the door is the new name that Christ has given you. And then when you enter the apartment, it becomes immediately obvious that this is your home. And that God understands your likes and your needs even better than we do. The furniture is your favorite style. The kitchen layout. The color schemes. Every item dialed to the most intricate details. Were created and tailored for you specifically for your happiness. And as you are thinking about all this and taking in all that you see. All of a sudden your thoughts are interrupted. Suddenly. Next door, there is yelling, screaming, hollering, Yippee! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Oh, what a Savior! And it sounds like whoever is over there is actually jumping on the bed and bouncing off the walls. And this continues to go on for minutes. And finally, your curiosity gets the best of you. And you walk over there and you knock on the door except they can't hear you. The noise is too much. Finally, you try again, you pound on the door, much louder this time. Finally, the door opens and there stands before you a short little man with a small, stubby mustache. And you are so shocked that you stand there speechless. And finally, after some time, the words escape your mouth. "Adolf." Is that you? Is that really you? I can't believe it. Yes, it's me. And believe me, you. I can't believe it either. Praise the Lord. What a Savior. But you don't understand. You turn. You run from the building in confusion. Who can I talk to he says, if only I could talk to HMS Richards. And you go running, looking for him. Finally, your angel catches up with you. His head droops. And he says, I'm so sorry. He didn't make it. This is just an illustration. I'm not saying that Hitler's going to be in heaven. And you can tell the story is 30 years old, and you may have inserted some other name other than HMS Richards, but it was certainly appropriate at the time. What I am saying, and as you may have guessed by the title of the sermon today, Heaven's Greatest Surprise, there are going to be some outstanding surprises, some shocks in heaven about who is there and who is missing. And there are several stories in the Bible that kind of give us clues about that, and we're going to look at one of them today. It's not one of the most common stories in the Bible, and yet many of you have probably heard of it, but it is one of the most astounding accounts recorded revealing the love and the forgiveness of God, and it's found in 2 Kings chapter 21, and I invite you to turn there. This is the story of Manasseh, but before we get into that story, I need to set the background just a little bit. Manasseh's story charts starts at the beginning of Second Kings 21, but we're going to back up one chapter to Second Kings 20 and read the first six verses of chapter 20 that talks about good king Hezekiah. You know, Judah had a few good kings, not very many. One of the best that they had was King Hezekiah. Well, let's just read it, starting with verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember me now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth with my whole heart and have done what is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it came about before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you to this city and from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city of my own for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. I give this little introduction about Hezekiah, only that sometimes we pray passionately, passionately for things that we think we want or we think are God's will. I think we have to be careful sometimes about the things we pray for, because sometimes God gives us the things we pray for, even if it's not best, even if that's not what he really wanted. And when he saw his faithful servant Hezekiah bitterly crying and pleading for life, God broke down and gave him 15 more years of life. But it was in that 15 years that Manasseh was born and was 12 years old when he came to the throne. And we'll read about that now in chapter 21. Starting with the first verse, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and if there was ever an understatement in the scripture, that is it. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he built high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed and he erected altars for Baal who had made an Asherah, that's a wooden female deity if you're not familiar with it, as King Ahab of Israel had done and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He seduced Judah to do more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. Whatever he could find to do, to throw something in the Lord's face, he did it. He took whatever his father Hezekiah had done and did the opposite, or tore down whatever his father had built up. Let's continue on. Verse 4. And he built the altars in the house of the Lord, in the, <clears throat> of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name, And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his sons pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, according or provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen from the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave to their fathers, if only they will observe to the commands, to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. What a story. Did you catch in verse 6 what it said there about having his son pass through the fire? Can you even imagine offering your own flesh and blood as a human sacrifice? For this is what it's talking about. In those days... They set up large idols that sat like a large Buddha. And in its lap would be a hole that served as an exhaust for a furnace. And they would heat the furnace as hot as they could get it. And they would lay their newborn babies on the red-hot grate on the idol's lap as a sacrifice. Besides the things that we've already talked about or read about here in Second Kings twenty-one, some are you familiar with the phrase? Uh, you know, when you're in war or something terrible is happening, something really bloody, and they talk about it being so bad there was bloods running, blood running in the streets. You've heard that type of phrase. I believe it came from this story of Manasseh, and it kind of talks about that. If you skip down to verse sixteen. It says, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides the sin with which he had made Judah sin in doing evil on the sight of the Lord. Yeah. You all remember the prophet Isaiah. He was the one that appeared to Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, when he was sick. And Isaiah was still living during the first part of Manasseh's reign. Mrs. White tells us in the book Prophets and Kings on page 382 that of all the innocent blood shed by Manasseh, Isaiah was one of the first to fall. She goes on to tell how many of the Lord's faithful were tormented. They were mocked, scourged, put in bonds, imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. Neither scripture or Mrs. White tells us exactly how the prophet Isaiah was murdered. But there are other history sources that tell us that Manasseh put Isaiah into a hollow log and sawed him up into tiny bits. the horrible atrocities that this man did might even make Hitler blush. Rise up in anger. And I don't know how many years the Lord put up with this. But he had finally seen enough. And we hear about that in verses 10 through 15. Let's read it. Now the Lord spoke through his servant, the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I can bring such a calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears it, both his ears will tingle. You've heard about people's ears tingling before. You know know where that comes from, too. There are so many of the little phrases that we use in life like that that actually come from Scripture. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before in reading the Bible. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it down and turning it upside down, I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of the enemies and they shall become the plunder and the spoil of their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day that their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. What do you think? Is God just in taking these actions against Manasseh? What is your reaction to the Lord's statement here? If you were like me when I first read this many years ago, I was thinking, good for him. Manasseh deserves it and more. Two more verses left in this section about Manasseh. Let's Go ahead and read those, verses 17 and 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did in his sin, which was committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son became king in his place. End of the story. No, not the end of the story. As many of you know, that many of the stories in First and Second Kings are repeated in First and Second Chronicles, and that is the case here too. And there's quite a few in the congregation here that are old enough to remember Paul Harvey, right? Anybody remember Paul Harvey? Remember that his news and commentary that he used to always have, but he also had a other special segment that he used to do called "The Rest of the Story." So this morning if you'd like to hear the rest of the story I invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Starting with the beginning of the chapter verse 1 Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he built the high places or he re, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father had torn down. He also erected altars to Baal and made ashram and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. You know, so far, it sounds exactly like Second Kings 21, doesn't it? Continuing on, and he built the altars of the house of the Lord, which the Lord said, for my name shall be in Jerusalem forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made the sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and he practiced witchcraft and divination, practicing sorcery. He dealt with medium spiritualists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That last statement there about provoking the Lord to anger, I understand that in the Hebrew it means that Manasseh was intentionally trying to provoke the Lord to anger. Continuing with verse 7. Then he put the carved image of the idol, which he had made in the house of the Lord, in which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, "In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. If only they will observe and do all that I have commanded them according to the law, the statutes, and the ordinances given through Moses." Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. As we've already talked about earlier, Manasseh was a brutal, wretched man, as base a human being can go. How does God react? Let's continue with verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, and they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. In the margin of my Bible, New American Standard, the word that's used for hooks there says it was a ring through the nose. And they attached chains to that ring through the nose. And it was no short walk to Babylon. It's thought to have taken over two months for that to happen. And he walked for those two months with that chain through the ring through his nose. And every time he would stumble, his guard would yank on that chain Ripping pain through his nose. Like you can't even imagine. Notice next what happens in verse 12. And when he, talking to Manasseh, was in distress, can you even imagine the next words? He entreated the Lord, what? His God? That's what it says. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And notice the next incredible verse, verse 13. And when he prayed to him, he, meaning God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Perhaps the most incredible verse in all of Scripture. Can you imagine this man, Manasseh, the first time that he raised his head to God and said, Oh my God. What have I done? God would have been totally justified in turning his back and jerking the chain in his nose and saying, Take it, you deserve it. At least that's how I would have felt. How many have you killed? The scriptures tell us that the blood flowed from one end of Jerusalem to the other because of this man. Let me read that verse again, verse 13. And when he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Not only did the Lord hear him and forgive him, but he restored his kingdom to him. Why did Manasseh turn his heart back to God. It wasn't because of anything good on his part, certainly. But it was because God never forgot him, did he? The Holy Spirit, as only the Holy Spirit can do, continued to lead, to plead, to woo him until he was in a place where he would listen. And isn't that the way that God works for us today? Exactly the same. He continues to work with us wherever we are, hoping, praying, leading, never forcing, but trying to bring us to a point where we'll listen. Let me ask you the same question I asked at the beginning of the message. Why has God instructed us not to judge our fellow man? We talked earlier about three or four reasons not understanding people's circumstances, protecting their reputation, not being able to judge their motives or the intentions of their heart, not even not understanding in our own hearts whether or not we have pure motives to judge. You maybe can add some additional reasons, but there's one more I'd like to suggest at this point. I would like to suggest that when you judge another person, your whole attitude about that person changes. You generally think less of the person and more of yourself, which is self-righteousness. You no longer tend to see that person through the eyes of God as a soul for whom the Lord Jesus Christ has shed his blood. Think about it. When you judge someone, do you have a burden for that person's soul? I doubt it. Not very often. Scripture does not reveal this. But it is my belief that there was someone, or maybe several someones, in the kingdom of Judah that had a burden for the soul of Manasseh. And partially because of those prayers, the Spirit of God was able to reach his depraved, sin-soiled heart. Can you even imagine the shock the prophet Isaiah will receive when he gets to heaven and sees Manasseh there? And maybe even has him for his next-door neighbor. I have no doubt in my mind what heaven's greatest surprise will be for the prophet Isaiah. In conclusion this morning, I'd like you to do two things for me. First, I'd like you to put yourselves into the shoes of Manasseh and look up to your God this morning and throw yourself at his mercy. Friends, I know the devil has thrown a lot of things at you. And there are some this morning who are almost certainly discouraged. Others that may be be mired in some secret sin. I just encourage you this morning to look to the story. The incredible story of Manasseh. Will not the great loving God of heaven who could save even the likes of Manasseh also save you, my friends? You know he can and he will. Will you let him this morning? Invite him anew this morning. Invite his Holy Spirit to come in and indwell you, live in you, cleanse you, restore you to Christ likeness, to heal you completely. The second thing I'd like you to do for me this morning is would you look through the eyes of God at the Manasseh or Manassas in your life? They may be friends, relatives, neighbors, co-workers, people for whom it looks like there is no earthly hope. They may be enjoying the pleasures of the world. Perhaps they are enslaved to drugs, alcohol, sex, social media, you name it. Perhaps they have a gross misunderstanding of who God really is and what he's really like. They may be bitter at God. They are doing all in their power to provoke him to anger. And I plead with you, don't give up on these precious souls. Will you ask the Lord this morning to give you a burden for them? And pray for them until the Lord comes to take us home. If you will faithfully do this, I guarantee you, some of you will share in the great joy in having had a part in helping some undeserving soul to be heaven's greatest surprise for some unsuspecting saints. Father, we do praise you this morning for that marvelous grace. And we invite you, Father, to come and continue to impress deeply on upon our hearts and minds our need of complete cleansing. Father, cleanse us all the way down to the DNA of our cells, to the neural pathways of our brains. Write your law upon our hearts and minds and help us this morning by your grace to see our brothers and sisters the way you see them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.